Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us, that we might know you, and we might learn of you, uh, and what you desire of us. We thank you for sending your son to us, that um, we might know you not just in pen and ink, but in flesh and blood. We might see your great love for us. We thank you, Father, for your Son, Christ. And we pray that in this moment, you, your, your Spirit dwelling within us, living amongst us, would stir up our, our, our hearts, our imaginations, our, our, our affections for your Son, Christ, that we might know him and we might live. We pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's been a little over three and a half years since I came to First Presbyterian Church to serve as your pastor. And over these past three and a half years, I've heard a consistent request in response to my sermons. The thing you keep telling me, week in and week out, is that my sermons need more John Calvin in them. Really, you've told me my sermons need more of two things, more Calvin and more cowbell, but this morning you're only going to get one of those two, and it's not the cowbell. In an effort to satisfy your unquenchable thirst for John Calvin, I am going to lean heavily upon him this morning. And believe it or not, the sermon will have nothing to do with election or predestination. Instead, this morning we are talking about liberty or freedom. It's the topic of our passage in Galatians this morning. And it's a topic that's also central to our identity as Americans, right? Liberty is written into the very words of our Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And in many ways, our, our freedom set us apart as a country within, within the history of, of, the, of nations and governments. Wars have been waged, lawsuits filed, elaborate arguments formed in order to protect this vitally important part of our identity as Americans. But this morning, we're not talking about our liberties as Americans but of a higher liberty that we possess as Christians. Just as our identity in Christ and citizenship in his kingdom is more central to our being than any other identity or citizenship in this world, so Christ is given priority in determining our liberties and how we employ them in this world and in our interactions with our neighbors. Our passage this morning begins in verse 1, with the almost humorous statement that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. He set us free so that we would be free. Why else would he set us free? Seems rather obvious, doesn't it? But the very next sentence reveals why Paul felt the need to say such an obvious thing. For in the next statement, he writes, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul reminds the Galatians that Jesus set us free so that we would be free because once freed, there were people in Galatia in the church returning to the slavery from which they had been freed and encouraging others to do likewise. 
And at this point, we need to answer two questions. What was this slavery to which Christians in Galatia were returning? And secondly, what is the nature of our freedom in Christ? And first, what was this slavery to which Christians in Galatia were returning? It was, if you, if you follow Paul into the next sentences of his letter, freedom from justification through obedience to the law. And more specifically, it was freedom from circumcision. Right? In the early church, there was this, this conflict that arose between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and it's hard to overestimate the intensity of this conflict, for it divided even the two greatest apostles, Peter and Paul. And it produced the first church council in Jerusalem, which is recorded for us in Galatians 2 and Acts 15. You see, Christianity grew out of Judaism. You might even say that Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. And the question that the early church was wrestling with was how much Jewishness should be retained in Christianity. And there were three markers in particular that the Jewish Christians were insisting upon, that if you were to be a Christian, you had to maintain or undergo in order to be counted as one of God's people. And those three markers were circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and keeping kosher. But Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, pushed back on these demands from the Jewish community. And we hear him doing this very thing beginning in verse 2, where he says quite clearly that if you let yourselves be circumcised, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. Paul's argument, which he develops over the next several verses, is that there's nothing you can do to improve your standing with God. There's no obedience on the part of humanity. That's a prerequisite for being counted as one of God's people. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. And it's through the obedience of Jesus Christ that we are justified by God. No removal of flesh, no special diet, no holding of one day as more important than others can either improve or harm your standing with God in Jesus. Jesus is sufficient. And through faith in him, all that is his becomes ours. And we too are counted righteous in God's sight. To pursue circumcision or to start keeping kosher or to observe the Jewish Sabbath days to return to slavery, Paul says. It's an act of condemnation and not freedom because it's a return to justification through obedience to the law. And no one can keep the law perfectly apart from Christ. He alone did that in order to free us of those demands so that we might live in the freedom of grace. As Paul says in verse 4, if you want to be justified by the law, then you've cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But as long as we appeal to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and do not rely on our own efforts at righteousness, then we're free. We're free. And this brings us, of course, to the second question that we posed earlier, which is, what is the nature of this freedom? The nature of this freedom in Christ is that Christians are free from trying to prove themselves before God either through goodness or kindness, or through anything we might point to, about, point to at in ourselves. 
whether that be our, our ethnic identity, our positions of influence, our abilities, our productivity, our beauty, or the size of our bank accounts. Jesus alone is our peace and our justification. Through faith in him, we are free. By grace, we are set at liberty. Paul goes to great lengths to argue for the liberty of the Christian in relationship to God. But then, in verse 13, he begins to talk about the employment of that liberty when put to use in relationship to humanity. Verse 13 provides this balance and restraint to the freedom he argues for in the first half of the chapter. For in verse 13, Paul writes, You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. In verse 1, Paul demands that the Galatians not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But in verse 13, he's encouraging the Galatians to become slaves to one another. What accounts for this apparent contradiction? This apparent contradiction, which is, which is not really a contradiction, between warning the Galatians about becoming slaves and then calling them to be slaves of one another arises from a change in audience. As John Calvin puts it in his commentary, there he is, for all of you. As John Calvin puts it in his commentary on Galatians, liberty lies in the conscience and looks to God. But the use of it lies in outward matters and deals not with God only, but with humanity. And what Calvin is saying is that when we consider ourselves in relationship to God alone, there are no claims that can be made on our freedom to limit or restrain it. We're free. But when we consider the employment of that freedom in relation to our neighbor, our freedom must be governed by love. This is precisely what Paul says in verse 13. You were called to freedom, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. Let us always remember, Calvin says, that the present question is not in what manner we are free before God, but in what manner we may use our liberty in our intercourse with others. And when we turn to consider our neighbor then, Paul says, we must let love constrain us. Our concern for our neighbor's well-being and flourishing, their health and safety should be allowed to determine the use of our freedoms and even infringe upon them or limit them. The way Calvin puts this is that a good conscience submits to no slavery. A good conscience, therefore, lets no one say that something must be done in order, to, in order for a person to become acceptable to God. A good conscience submits to no slavery. But to practice outward slavery or to abstain from the use of liberty is attended by no danger. In a word, if by love we serve one another, we shall always have regard to edification and use the grace of God for his honor and the salvation of our neighbor. What Calvin is telling us that Paul is saying is that we should let no one complicate our freedom in relation to God. 
But that the proper use of this freedom, when we turn to consider our neighbor, is to restrain ourselves, to practice outward slavery, as Calvin calls it, to abstain from the exercise of our liberty. To do so is no danger to us if no one is claiming that the thing we are restraining ourselves to do has any impact on our standing with God. And there's no reason to object or to stubbornly insist upon our own liberty at the expense of our neighbors. In fact, Calvin is saying that such restraint, governed as it is by love, is the proper use of the grace we enjoy in relationship to God. In other words, Christ sets us free so that we are free to serve, free to become a slave to the needs and interests of our neighbors, free to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this act of service towards our neighbor, Paul says in verse 14, is the fulfillment of the entirety of God's law. Right after he tells the Galatians to allow their freedom to be regulated by love, he says, for the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a remarkable claim that Paul's making here because when Jesus was asked to sum up the entirety of the law, his summation was longer than Paul's. In Mark 12, Jesus summed up the entire law by saying, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Paul, in his summation, left the love of God out of his summation and provided, uh, provided an even more narrow summation of the law, summing it up only with you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he do this? Again, for your sake, really, we turn to John Calvin. John Calvin explains the reason why Paul has provided this even more abbreviated summary to the law. He writes this, Piety to God, I acknowledge, ranks higher than love of brethren. And therefore, the observance of the first is more valuable in the sight of God than the observance of the second. But as God himself is invisible, so piety is a thing hidden from people's eyes. Therefore, God represents himself to us in humanity and in their persons demands what is due to himself. In other words, what Calvin is saying, and the reason why Paul only lists love your neighbor as yourself in the summation of the law, is because we prove our love of God, which is invisible to the human eye, by loving our neighbors in ways that everyone can see. We, we treat our neighbors as more important than ourselves in order to show that we hold God as more important than ourselves. And this link between our neighbor and our God is present because as Christians, we believe that every human being was born in God's image so that we do not condition our love for our neighbor based on the worthiness of an individual according to whatever metric we apply in evaluating them but according to the image of God, which they bear in their soul. We are therefore willing to put up with a, a whole lot more when we are restraining our liberties out of love, when we consider our neighbor according to God's image, as opposed to their income or education level, 
the color of their skin or the language they speak, their outward appearance, their personality, political affiliation, or their past. The love of God compels us to consider them as more significant than ourselves. And this was the very attitude that compelled Christ, who did not regard our unworthiness, but in love chose to humble himself and come to us anyway. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross so that we might not have to fear death in him. He did this not because we're worthy of it, but because he loved us. And he loved us because we bear in our beings the image of God. And now this same spirit of the risen Christ dwells in us, empowering us to follow in his steps into humility and the sacrifice of our liberties for the welfare of our neighbors. Live by the spirit, therefore, Paul says in verse 16, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Live by the spirit and you'll be able to follow in the way of Christ. His way is extremely difficult, very un-American. So we need all the help we can get. Because when you turn to consider the well-being and needs of your neighbor, you'll quickly run into what you perceive to be unreasonable and unnecessary demands upon you. To be clear here, we should never compromise or give in to anything that would be displeasing to God or a violation of the law he set down or the order he set place, set place in creation. Jesus lived to fulfill the law, so nothing is an excuse to sin against it. But given that caveat, there remains a huge number of ways in which we are still called to demonstrate our love for God by practicing external slavery to our neighbor. Now, to make this more concrete, I'll give you two examples. The first is fairly mundane and benign, and the second perhaps a bit controversial. We'll warm up with the first. The first example concerns a pine tree in my backyard. Our backyard is, is fenced all the way around it, and running along the fence in our yard are 18 or so very large pine trees. They're mature trees, so they're, they're quite large, and the limbs on them are, are pretty significant in size. Just the other day, one of those limbs peeled off the tree and landed on the other side of the fence in my neighbor's yard, right between their truck and their garden, by God's grace. The limb had fallen in such a way that the, the base of the limb was still attached, or the base of the limb was still attached to the tree, but the end of the limb was touching the ground in my neighbor's yard. Now, as I understand the law, which is a terrifying thing to say in Miguel's presence, I have no obligation to clean up that limb because it's in my neighbor's yard. It's in their yard, it's their responsibility, which is crazy to me, but hey, it's Arkansas. I was free, therefore, from the responsibility of cleaning, cleaning this limb up in my neighbor's yard. I had every right to force them to pay the 100 bucks or so to, to have a tree service come, up, come out and cut it up and haul it away. But both my neighbor and I knew that it had come from my tree. And so, liberty or not, I paid to have it removed. I didn't have to, but I did out of love for, for my neighbor and love for my God. Okay, so that's mundane, a mundane, benign example. 
How about something more controversial? And what could be more controversial these days than masks? They're controversial because they have, like most everything, been politicized and turned into a cipher of some larger political position. But is what Paul is saying about the employment of our liberty as Christians relevant to the question of whether or not we should wear masks? Can Paul's teaching in Galatians 5 help us consider the question outside of the political framework that has been applied to it? I think it can. Because in this ongoing debate, we have this portion of the population calling for masks because they believe masks are effective in decreasing the spread of a virus that has killed over 650,000 Americans since it began. And a mask requirement makes them feel safer in social settings. On the other side, not taking into account how masks affect children's developmental and educational needs when in school. There are people who find the, the requirements for masks to be unreasonable, unsupported by enough evidence and an infringement upon their liberty. But when has love, which is to govern the employment, uh, employment of our liberties as Christians, ever insisted that the demands made upon it be reasonable and well-researched? Now, love is patient, Paul famously says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not insist on its own way. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If love is to be our guide in employing our liberties, and it seems that Paul's calling us to put up with a whole lot of things that we personally disagree with or even find unreasonable. In 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle Paul, who knew better, was willing to forego the consumption of all meat out of deference to his weaker brothers who were troubled by the idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols of wood and stone. Paul knew better. He, he knew that these were nothing more than blocks of wood and stone, but love drove him to this sacrifice. No one is saying, or should ever say, that the decision to wear a mask or not bears any implication on a person's standing with God. As Calvin says, a mask maketh no man a Christian. And if that is the case, then love for our neighbor should be our guide. Right? Concern for the well-being, health, and flourishing of our neighbor calls for the sacrifice of our liberties. Our sacrifice shows our brothers and sisters the way Christ has loved us. Now, you might think that masks do not contribute to the well-being, health, or flourishing of anyone. But in this situation... It's the need of your neighbor who thinks that they do that determines our behavior as Christians. Our sacrifice shows our brothers and sisters the way Christ has loved us. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did that in order to set you free from the performance of the law, which no one can fulfill. You were therefore called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love, become slaves to one another.
name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.